0: You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers, and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here. On wings over new zealand to our global audience thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com
1: g'day i'm steve Vischer. and i'm grant McCarran, and we're from plane crazy down under australia's aviation show and you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com
0: we reckon for the best coverage of the kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene you can't go past dave homewood and the wings over new zealand show on ya dave yeah good on you, mate yeah, we got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that, anyway?
1: Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Extended, the ETOPS aviation podcast.
0: <music> Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no
1: E at the beginning of Extended. <laughs>
2: extended. Extended. <laughs>
1: I remember some men started praying, and others started crying. Um, part way through it, one guy got to his feet and started to run.
2: I was scared to let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spando up there, and they opened up, and there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. and New Zealand tanks were over the other river, and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up for five minutes. We'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put out a shell in right in the middle of the bridge.
1: It was a bitterly cold morning and I was crouched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again.
2: Hear the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II. The Courage and Valour podcast. www.newzealandersatwar.com
0: The Wings Over New Zealand Show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3, go to www.flydc3.co.nz
2: Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand Show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, I'm very pleased to bring you the second part of Peter Tremaine's interview. To hear the first part, please go back and listen to episode 82 of the Wings Over New Zealand show. In this episode, we pick up the story again, talking about the last episode. Okay, well, let's just start with uh, revisiting the the last episode. You said you have a few corrections, so... Uh, We'll address those first, and then we'll get into the rest of the interview. Okay. So what would you like to um, talk about? Uh, First of all, the Antarctic uh,
1: and the uh, VX6 uh, VX6, uh, Navy uh, Otter. And I was talking about um, having fuel drop-offs by their C-130BLs, where the aeroplane would touch down close to where our camp was uh, with the Otter down by the Bedmore Glacier, and uh, uh, roll these drums. I'd keep moving across the snow um, with all the, well, the engines running, of course, and the, the, the rear door would come down, and these drums of fuel would come out the back for us. And I said uh, the first time there that it was JP4. Well, that's jet fuel, so that wasn't it. Uh, it was right. that aviation gasoline, because the Otter, of course, was that particular Otter was um, piston-powered. So that was one of the corrections. Uh, the other I was talking about limited panel in uh, in Harvard that we used to do a lot of limited panel where we would just cage the di uh, and cage the artificial horizon, and right. that would, we we were left with airspeed, altitude, VSI, uh, and an E type compass. But I didn't mention, of course, we were left with a turn and slip indicator, the batten ball. And the other item was, of course, the clock with the sweep uh, second hand, which is kind of important because we we're always trying for unlimited panel to do rate one turns, and so they had to be timed, uh, right. as well as keeping a little bat in the first uh, indicator, whatever it was, on on the turn and slip. And we did the same thing in the Devon uh, and also in the freighter. We we would fly limited panel. It was a a requirement for, instrument, for uh, instrument checks, rating checks. And uh, if I remember correctly, uh, in the Harvard and possibly the Devon, uh, we would do a 60-degree bank turn, and uh, we had to stay within, I think it was plus or minus 200 feet, which was a little tricky on a limited panel when you don't have an artificial horizon. Right. Uh, and the freighter, uh, I think we went to 45 degrees, And that was the test there. And once again, it was um, plus or minus 200 feet. A full panel, when we had the artificial horizon and uh, the compass, the gyro-stabilized compass available, it was plus or minus 100 feet. Okay. Yeah. So that was, um, yeah, i had forgotten about the turn of slip, kind of important. Um, The other interesting thing that came to mind when I was doing this, that we would actually practice instrument takeoffs in the Harvard. Uh, from the back seat. And uh, I think we may have done it in the Oster AOP, uh, the 7. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, now, this was assuming you had the artificial horizon. But you have to remember that it was not done on a runway. We would do it on the grass airfield at Wigram. So any straying left and right and so on, would you, you could actually do it. But it was uh, under the hood. And uh, it was an interesting exercise, because because the swing on takeoff, once you lifted the tail in particular, and you put some gyro procession into the thing, uh, the airplane would veer off heading. Uh, And the other thing was that the uh, AH, which was a steam-driven one, it was pneumatic, would actually uh, have some uh, errors uh, as you accelerated. And it would it had actually indicated a bank when, in fact, a small bank, which, which was not, was not actual, actual. So it was a little tricky. So it was. I think this was a hangover from, uh, obviously, World War II. And the World War II instructors, you know, they said, we used to be able to do it on the grass airfields in England. <laughs> you guys should be able to do it here. And uh, <laughs> so uh, it, it was interesting. But I, I think it, was, it must have been the Oster. Uh, it had a venturi tube to get the suction to drive the artificial horizon and so you actually didn't get the artificial horizon working until you got up to a reasonable speed and the little venturi tube outside gave us you gave the pneumatic pressure uh in harvard it was uh, it, it came from a vacuum pump so uh, right. you didn't have to have the speed to indicate it but i just thought that, that was kind of an interesting uh side issue um the other thing i i just want to speak about, because I'm going to talk about uh, some interesting aspects of uh, and stories about the 727, but uh, probably not many people in New Zealand uh, or even Australia remember that uh, the Aussies actually spun a C-130, and uh, not intentionally, of course. Oh. And it was a C-130A, and a 36 squadron, I guess, over there at Richmond, and... Uh, It really tells you something about what I was discussing about people not being upside down. Now, a lot of commercial pilots have never been upside down or in a spin. Right. But this was back in uh, probably the early 60s, and they were doing – I don't think they were using – they didn't have a simulator for the C-130A at the time, the Aussies. So they were doing all the flight training in the air, and they were doing uh, stall approach or approach to stall, and apparently, from what I can recall, it was uh, flaps up uh, at uh, no, probably above 10,000 feet. Not much above it, but probably around there. And uh, the flaps were up and power on, a certain amount of power, which meant you got into a very high nose attitude. And obviously, the student, the guy on the left-hand seat, uh, let the thing get out of, you know, it, it suddenly turned upside down. And the next thing... Right. They're in this unbelievable maneuver. The guy in the right seat is an old hand like me and, and, and the others who had been fly, probably flying wereaways and whatever else they had there uh, yeah. and doing spins pretty regularly. And so they sat there terrified, I guess, as the thing was completely out of control and heading downhill pretty fast. And so the guy in the right seat, the, the old hand instructor, he said, you know what? I recognize this. This is a spin. So let's try, what is it? Power off, full opposite rather to, to the direction of the spin, and stick slowly forward until it stops. And it worked. And wow. uh, so <laughs> the, the airplane was a write off. You know, the wings were completely uh, wrecked. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I thought that was just interesting. It was a further indication of. Our background of constantly doing aerobatics and spinning and uh, and all that kind of thing used to being upside down etc etc yes yeah so that's about it um, we can do-
2: well, I actually yeah I, I just had a couple of um, things that came into my head as you were talking there about the um, the, the oster and and, and the, the ice um, with the beaver with the otter down uh, in the ice when you were flying around the surface that you landed on each time, because you're moving around the the ice to different p- parts. Did it differ each time you landed um, on different parts of the ice?
1: Yes, it did. Uh, I mean, the, the term "ice" is a is a, uh, all-encompassing term, and you know, we talked about being on the ice. But uh, the uh, if we a few times we landed on, on clear sea ice, tucked in in some of these bays in the kind of late summer. Uh, the airplane just—we couldn't stop it. I mean, it just kept sliding and sliding and sliding until it hit a patch, a little patch of snow. So that was wow. interesting. Uh, out on the ice shelf, which is thousand feet thick or five hundred feet thick or whatever it is, leading up to all the glaciers uh, like the Beardmore and so on, um, it—the uh, snow conditions, the snow surface, uh, could be extremely rough. Uh, In most cases, it was. Uh, What the U.S. Navy did for what they call skiways for their C-130s, and there was one at McMurdo, uh, there was the ice runway, which was grated on on sea ice, and uh, then there was a skiway, which was they flattened the surface a little bit with a bulldozer or whatever it was, um, out on the snow itself, on the on the shelf ice. And uh, so it smoothed it off a bit. When they were right. doing open ski landings, uh, open field, it, it was pretty rough in a C-130 uh, if, if it hadn't been graded in some way. And it was very, very rough in the good old Otter. Uh, right. I, I do remember a takeoff that we did at a place called Roosevelt Island, which didn't even look like an island. It was just a bit of a hump. Uh, and uh, we must have gone for, on forever, uh, and uh, every uh, rise in the snow and uh, undulation, the the doors would flow fly open on the side. I have to slam the doors, and then it's off again, bounce back on, and so on. Unbelievable, uh, but most of the time uh, down at uh, the snow actually was quite smooth down at uh, near the Bedmore Glacier base. And I think that's because the C one thirties had been landing there off and on and you know dropping off these drums and things like that. So hard, it did hard. depend. You just um uh but the the good news, of course, is that uh you could put it down anywhere. And while I was there, a C one hundred thirty coming back from the anti- from uh the South Pole, which had a a snow runway that they'd that graded, and uh it was relatively smooth up there. They ended up shutting down engines, and they ended up with three engines failed. and uh, they put it down on the shelf ice. What it was was engine icing. There was, uh, there'd been fuel a lot of the fuel tank well all the fuel tanks at all the locations uh, at the, uh, that they would refuel at were bladders. and they were getting a lot of um, ice crystals in there, which when it got into the airplane, uh, into the tanks. Uh, and started running into the engines, even though there were ice screens, it could actually end up uh, with fuel starvation. And uh, they actually discovered that the JP4, which they were using, was actually, if you if you got a bottle of it, uh, took it out a sample, and put it out and put it into somewhere warm, you had about a third amount of water in there. So that's what happened. Wow. And, Gosh! Yeah, it was fascinating. Uh, it was uh, one of those discoveries that during those early years of the C 130s in extreme cold conditions, uh, they they had to f- figure out a problem. I mean, there was the fuel heaters in them, but the screens were getting blocked the, uh, before it even got to the fuel heaters. So that was that was kind of interesting.
2: Right. And what about um, also something down there that you wouldn't have experienced much of, if anything, in New Zealand, and that's helicopters.
1: Uh, yes. Well, I, we didn't have any helicopters, of course, in New Zealand at the time. I don't think right. there were even any ag, uh, agricultural ones or deer hunters ones. That came sort of after the Vietnam War period. Right. Uh, so, but I got to, uh, they tried to teach me to fly the S-58, which was a big Sikorsky, and uh, which was one of the main hauler there. Uh, yeah. And it was uh, extremely difficult um, to try and... <clears throat> control the boost and the rpm and when you pulled up the uh the collective and uh i i, I guess i got it onto the ground a couple of times without too much effort crashing on and i was able to lift it off but it was um it had a tremendous amount of torque it was unlike the iroquois and all the other later helicopters which had uh, much more i don't know stabilized um, controls and of course had a turbine engine. I mean, piston engine airplane was like a Harvard. It was, uh, I think it was a Wright cyclone, whatever it was in there, the the engine, a turboshaft engine, uh, not turboshaft, it was piston. And uh, you, as you pull the collective up, you had to match the boost with the RPM, which was kind of difficult to do. Um, You know, you tip, uh, you pulled and you got boost, and I think you got RPM when you, turn the handle or whatever it was It was very confusing right so um yeah but it was exciting stuff i went to, went to a lot of places dry valleys and i visited all the uh, old uh, pioneers huts um uh, the one at Royd's which was uh, um from 1907 uh the two down at um that scott had used um yep. and so that, that was pretty good um, having that opportunity to fly those airplanes or to fly in them as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, well, that, you must be the RNZF's earliest um, helicopter pilot, I guess, or, or one of them at least. I suppose I was. I was never checked <laughs> out on the thing. I suppose
1: I certainly got the flights in there, but you're probably right. Yeah. I, I had, must, must admit I hadn't thought about that. Uh, <laughs> I Probably in those Sikorskis I did um, sat in the, the right seat, um, which – uh, right seat? Yeah, right seat. Cause, uh, no, left seat? I, yeah, left seat. Because Captain, the main pilot, sits in the right seat. So in the left seat of the thing, I probably did 20 or 30 hours. Okay. Uh, so it's kind of fun.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I can't think of anything else from, from the RNZF career, so shall we get on to find out? Uh, what happened when you left the Air Force?
1: Okay, that was uh, March 1977, and that was my 20-year point. So uh, I um, uh, for quite a number of years before that, I'd actually been on the ground. I'd been in staff jobs in Singapore uh, after I left the C-130, and uh, I came back from three and a half years, uh, three years in Singapore. Uh, with Anz- I'd been with the ANZAC headquarters and then with the RNZF, New Zealand headquarters up in Singapore this is the yeah. mid 60, uh, mid seventies. Yeah. And really the only flying I did was, uh, as a safety pilot for the last days in Saigon. Um, I went over to 41 with 41 squad and went up to Saigon and I was there leading up to those last few days. And I sat on the step, um, with, uh, with the crew navigator and pilot and, uh, um, to act because of gunfire and what have you. And it was certainly the most dangerous time I spent in in, in Vietnam, without a doubt, not because of the approaching North Vietnamese, and they were everywhere, uh, or the Viet Cong. It was actually the battle between the South Vietnamese Army and the South Vietnamese Air Force. And we were living on the South Vietnamese Air Force main base um, at uh, General Keys at... uh, uh, in Saigon, and everybody was shooting at everybody. I mean, it was it oh. was uh, we, we we were hunkered down uh, in a in a redoubt we built out of uh, bags of rice, uh, and it was Bob Davidson was running that. Uh, he was the CEO of Forty One Squadron at the time. It was pretty exciting. Um, uh, probably the scared the most scared I've ever been was um, we landed at Vung Tau uh, with a load of relief supplies for the folks down there, and the place was deserted. I mean, it was just landed on the runway and, uh, and taxied in where we normally would have gone and uh, in the good old days, and nobody really came out. And uh, I, I can't remember who the captain was at the time, but we, we stepped out of the airplane, shut the engines down, stepped out of the airplane, and all we could hear was gunfire. They said, uh, automatic gunfire. I,
2: wow.
1: And so we all looked at each other and said, let's get the heck out of here. So I remember... Getting back on, I was sitting on the step between the pilot and the navigator and the whole takeoff run, uh, I, I thought you know, the bullets would start just coming through the, the side window from on the left-hand side, which was uh, where the captain was sitting. Uh, I, I just couldn't believe we were going to get away from, uh, from there without getting hit. Uh, and uh, so that was, uh, that was pretty exciting, those, those last days there. And that was 75, April 75, fitting in to actually the the way the war was and the way the war had been fought. But anyway, that was my last flying. uh, And I was at RNZF headquarters when I retired uh, in Wellington as uh, transport staff officer or whatever it was. And uh, they were good enough to, as I got got closer to uh, retirement, uh, to send me down to Wigram. Uh, to do a um, Devon course, uh, all about instrument tr- um, instrument rating, right? Uh, because they knew I'd asked for it, and I said, look, I'm, I'm getting out. I've got a uh, New Zealand uh, uh, ATPL, which I'd actually got in 1970, but I wasn't exactly current, certainly on instrument flying. So I went down to CFS, uh, Central Flying School at Wigram, and uh, flew the Devon for maybe about 15 hours, and it was all instrument stuff. Uh, ADF approaches um, and uh, all the good old um, things like that, PAR approaches over at Christchurch. And um, they signed me off, uh, and with that I was able to be current uh, on uh, as an instrument pilot again for when I went out into the civilian world. Right. And I think the other thing i you mentioned it the other day the back one sixty seventh whatever the, what was what was the name for those what the strike master strike master right right yeah I actually studied the strike master i I signed up for a course to go uh, they were going to give me another female course on the strike master, and I had the pilot's notes and I remember reading all about it and it was all geared up to uh, to go to a Haku and fly the thing and for some reason it it didn't uh, didn't uh, happen. But um, the last six months, I guess, or last three months in my time, uh, I was doing part-time work. Uh, we got approval from the RNZF, myself and Gordon Thompson and uh, uh, Frank Roach, I think it was the three of us, uh, to fly Cessna 402s for Murray Turley at Capital Air Services. So we were doing night stuff. Um, The Night Curious stuff up to Auckland, uh, checks or whatever it was in the 402s, and also uh, weekend. We would uh, fly the newspapers from Wellington across to Blenheim and then to Nelson and do a passenger flight back across to Wellington. So I was certainly, even before I left, I was well into the uh, commercial aviation. And it was, a whole, it was a whole new world, particularly flying those Cessna 402s. And it was actually the job. The airplane was actually very nice to fly. And it, most of the time, everything worked. Um, it had VORs, of course, and you could fly ILSs. It uh, didn't have a flight director, uh, but it uh, you had the Zero Reader or whatever this little thing was. I can't even remember what they were called now. And uh, we did freight and we did uh, passenger flights for them. So, when I left in March, um, my final days there, Capital took me on as one of their pilots. So, there I was flying 402s um, on their regular runs and doing some light stuff still. Uh, and mainly it was Wellington to Blenheim to Nelson to Westport to Greymouth to Christchurch to uh, uh, Palmerston North, uh, up to Auckland occasionally. But the normal runs were pretty much in that central area uh, right. for passengers. They, they were the routes that uh, capital had. And uh, you know, the only funny stories about that, uh, just a few, um, I remember I think David Bevan, who was um, an ex-Air Force guy, he, he was flying with me as one of the pilots there, eventually got hired by NAC. But he, um, one day he came back, had to change, it had been a rough flight as only across the Cook Strait can be uh, in any aeroplane, but particularly the 402. And uh, he had to pull these seats out and and pack them down to set it up for freight. And obviously someone had thrown up into one of these uh, uh, chuck bags in the back. And as he picked the uh, seat up, tipped it upside down. Of course, all fell on top of him. And <laughs> I, I just, I, I mean, I just, to this day. Oh, and then there was one shoe as well. Someone had left a, sh- a shoe in there as well. And uh, we, <laughs> David said, has anyone seen a, anybody running across the tarmac there at Wellington? Were there that, only that one shoe or left the, the other shoe behind somewhere? Um, and uh, there were many, many funny incidents like that. I mean, it's a hard way to, earn a living, because we didn't get paid very much for it. But it was good flying. I mean, it was a good experience. And we had to write the tickets out ourselves, particularly at places like West Point and Greymouth. We had to pour the fuel ourselves, uh, drive the tanker uh, that we had at uh, Nelson. And uh, I came out of Christchurch one morning talking about civil twilight or whatever it is, and daylight and all that kind of thing. And we had to arrive at Greymouth I had a load of passengers, six or seven, whatever we carried, six, I guess it was. Uh, and uh, it was just on first light. I could just see the runway, sort of. And um, I didn't have to do an instrument let down there. Came in from the sea, came around, and uh, I could. See, there was no runway lights, of course, and no yeah. approach lights uh, because it was an unattended airfield, no tower. And uh, as I touched down, out of the corner of my eye, left eye, I could see something huge next to me, to the airplane. And it was a horse running down the side of the runway, galloping down, trying to beat me. And I thought, I hope it doesn't run across the runway here, right now, you know, with the, the engines turning. So anyway, I had to call the, we called the local police, and uh, they came out and routed up this horse that had got onto the airfield during the night. So... Uh, Talk about uh, scud running I mean, it was it was unbelievable, very very exciting times and uh, I certainly learnt a lot about flying from that I, If I, I never learned anything in the Air Force, I certainly <laughs> learned it flying for capital Air services, which right. became uh, James Airways or something it was it was uh, went into bankruptcy, capital Air, and Aussie uh, took it over uh, and he um, I think it became James. James Aviation, or James, it must have been James Air, I guess. Right. And so in the interim, uh, Ozzy asked me, he said, uh, hey, do you want to come up and uh, work for me in Hamilton? And, um, you know, in between times, if they're shorter pilots down at uh, Nelson, because we'd move the headquarters uh, for the operation to Nelson, yep. uh, you can um, you can go down there and fly for them for a couple of weeks or whatever, and they can, uh, when they got pilots on leave, et cetera. So I said, well, that sounds okay. What What do you want me to do in Hamilton? They said, well, we want you as a sales demonstration guy. We have uh, the distributorship for Beechcraft and also, also for uh, de Havilland of Canada. And I think they had uh, a helicopter as well, one of the um, little jet things they used, uh, jet turbine things they used for... Uh, I'm trying to. I can't remember the name of the darn thing, but oh,
2: oh was it the Hiller?
1: The Hiller, yeah, the Hillers, yeah, yeah. that's right. And the Hiller guy was a Kiwi. Uh, you know, he was uh, over in uh, in the states, the Hiller home, and um, he used to he used to communicate with him. But sold quite a few helicopters. David Young was my mentor up there. He he ran the sales department. Uh, he was pretty good for a commercial pilot. Well, for a private pilot. Uh, he was very capable. I, I did teach him instrument flying, I must admit. Um, we did a whole series of instrument time. Uh, and uh, so I was with him. Uh, that was, uh, let's see, mid-77, uh, late-77. I went up there, and I was with James for two years, doing, doing all kinds of stuff. And I was just looking at my uh, type rating. See, here's my New Zealand ATP here which was number 550, uh, which was issued originally in December 1970. And uh, I've got PA-18 on here, Cessna 402, Beech A36, Cessna 172, the Beech 24R, which was the Sierra retractable gear thing, which I flew a lot. Um, Cessna 172, I can't remember when I got that. Uh, Beech, oh, Beech Baron, which was, we had a selection of barons. Uh, North American 86, of course, for the Harvard. The Beach 76 was the Duchess. And it's got DH-104, which I presume was the Devon. Um, So they were all on my New Zealand uh, license uh, from the time before I went to Australia uh, in 1979. And uh, while I was there, because I flew, I flew a lot of these little, what we, I used to call bug smashes, uh, yep. the small airplanes. But the A30, the Bonanzas, the A36 and the V35 were splendid airplanes to fly, uh, particularly if they were well equipped with a uh, you know, full IFR, single pilot IFR uh, gear. The only thing that were missing, um, like the A36, which we had, was so good. Uh, it didn't have an electric prop. And or an electric windscreen. So uh, if you got into icing, it wasn't so good. You know, the, the aeroplane would go downhill. But I flew it quite a lot at night, say from Hamilton down to Christchurch, uh, fly Aussie down there occasionally, and all over the place. Uh, and I had that clearance to do that. And I continued to fly the 402 from time to time. They'd call me up and uh, I'd go down there. Aussie had let me go for... Um you know ten days or two weeks, whatever it was uh to nelson um, and uh the ultimate thing for me with uh James was ending up flying a brand new v thirty five Bonanza uh, out of the states to New Zealand the long way yep. and um, so which I did on my own and uh the the most notable thing about that was. Now I picked it up at Gando. It had been left there by the owner and his mates who uh, had planned to fly it all the way back to New Zealand themselves and fortunately, they chickened it out uh, and they were heading from Gando in Newfoundland um, direct to the u k and I know they wouldn't have made it i, I just there wasn't just not enough fuel on board there was a fifty six gallon tank behind the pilot's seat had been put in, and uh, it had tip tanks uh which meant it had two-bladed propeller instead of the three. So it was, the engine didn't seem to run as smoothly as you know, a three, the three-bladed normal A36. However, uh, the airplane was brand new. It had uh, two HF sets in it, one for when it got back to New Zealand because the guy who purchased the airplane, he wanted to fly to Norfolk Island across to Australia uh, back and forth. The other one was put in as a ferry kit, um, but it was very overweight. There was no question about it. So I got to. Um, I was at Beechcraft uh, doing a a Super King Air course, and uh, you know, I see James as people call me up and said, um, "Those guys are checking out with this airplane, and uh, uh, the keys are left somewhere." I guess it, the airplanes at ga- Gander. So by the time I got to Gander, uh, I flew up. But through Toronto and uh, Stephenville and wherever else and got across to Gander. The airplane was sitting way out in the middle of the field. And uh, so I I went out there, had a look at it, and uh, all the disc brakes were rusted and, uh, you know, the discs. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, the tyres looked a little flat. And it had been sitting there for about maybe three three weeks at the time. And uh, unbelievably, when I opened the... Back door, there's all these uh, plastic containers of gasoline sitting in there, <laughs> and I thought, I know what these guys were doing. I, I think there were three of them, which you know would have really overweight. Uh, obviously, the intent was they were going to fly across the Atlantic to to Britain, you know, to England, Shannon or somewhere like that, uh, which I knew they'd never make. And they so they had all these uh, plastic containers. That They were going to put into, um, obviously, fill the 56-gallon tank up when it got empty in flight.
2: Right, right, right.
1: Unbelievable. I mean, Lindbergh got Lindbergh to have been proud of them, I guess. But, um, <laughs> but the normal way to fly that airplane, uh, any of those light airplanes, single engine, uh, out of Gander, uh, was up to um, Greenland, up the fjord in Greenland, and then across to Reykjavik or Keflavik, was the airfield in Iceland, and then down to um, Shanwick in, um, in Scotland, uh, and then, you know, all whatever. Uh, but I knew quite a few um, of the people that actually had died um, flying that route in single-engine airplanes. Uh, even if you had a poopy suit, one of these things that you could survive in the water for a while, uh, you probably had about an hour uh, if you didn't get your – covered up in your – life raft and so on, if you didn't have any of that stuff and you fell into the water up there, uh, give you 30 minutes and you were dead. So um, I looked at the situation there and I, because I had flown the C-130 across the Atlantic, we used to go into, uh, we'd come out of Charleston or somewhere like that and uh, head across to uh, Larger's which was an Air Force base for the Portuguese and for the U.S. Air Force, on, on the Azores Azores Island. And uh, so I measured it out from uh, Gander, uh, and I looked looked at it and I thought, well, the fuel I've got on board, maybe I can make it across there. At least the water, if I do fall into the water, it'll be a bit warmer. Probably not much. You know, my survival time might have increased to two hours. Who knows? Yeah. And I certainly didn't have a poopy suit. I had... Uh, um, I was just in my street clothes, essentially. Uh, I did have a life raft. So um, it looked, I couldn't go to, I, I suppose I could have made special requests for largest to land there. Uh, but Santa Maria was the commercial airfield and it was further down the chain. Uh, and uh, so I looked at that and I thought, you know what, 15, whatever it was, 1,400 nautical miles or something, I, I can make that. If I go down to Torbay, which is just a bit closer on Newfoundland, that's St. John's. Uh, and so that's what I did. I flew the airplane that gave me an opportunity to test it, uh, find out what kind of range I was going to get fuel consumption. Um, and it was just a 30 minute flight. And it might've been an hour down to, down to Torbay. Uh, and then, uh, got myself organized and off I went and, uh, uh, it, uh, I think I had flight planned uh, with uh, using the old, good old E6B slipstick there uh, with the winds that they gave me for 8,000 feet, which is I thought all I could get to with a fully loaded airplane. Um, it was going to take me eight and a half hours. Well, in the end, it took me 10. And uh, I did have probably an hour's fuel left, maybe a little bit more when i got to santa maria and uh, a couple of things that i was aware of is about 300 miles before you get to um maybe it's 200 miles before we get to santa maria is is an island called flores flores yeah and they had a very powerful uh ndb on there one of the most powerful in the world and it was there for uh, U- uh, U.S. military, primarily, getting across. Uh, and you could pick this NDB up at about 300 miles. So uh, quite clearly, thank goodness, because I had, no other, I had no other clue of where I was going, really. I mean, it was, it was all, what's the word, um, uh, DR reckoning, but I had no long-range navigation information. And I had to rely on the winds that I'd been given. And I think the winds were actually fairly correct. What was wrong was uh, the airplane, uh, I could just couldn't get the true airspeed out of it. It was just too heavy. Yeah. Um, anyway, the big drama out of it was uh, I, uh, uh, I got two hours out, something like that, uh, and the engine quit on me, uh, heading out over the sea. I was pretty close to where the Titanic went down. And, wow. uh, it suddenly got very quiet, and I was—I'd fallen asleep, as it turned out. Uh, Auto pilot was on, and uh, I sure woke up in a hurry. And what I'd been doing, and I—I I guessed it almost immediately was—I was trying to get the fuel out of the tip tanks, and then I was going to—and I got it out of one, and then I got was getting the second one, getting getting the fuel out of there until it ran dry, or close to it, and then uh, I. Go to the 56 gallon tank behind me, and then I would go to the main system, you know, because those things had to work. You had to get rid of that fuel first uh, and know that it was, you could use it before you start getting into the main main fuel system. Yep. Uh, so I found I'd fallen asleep and uh, silence, so I dropped into my old Harvard mode of close the throttle, warn the crew, which was me, uh, convert excess speed to height, <laughs> and trim for 90 knots, you know. And, and then try to figure out was what was wrong. Uh, right. so I guess it was the fuel. So I'd close the throttle, uh put the mixture to rich uh RPM to max position, and uh then just switch the fuel to one of the main tanks and uh oh there was the fortunately the airplane had a a electrical fuel pump on it as well. Um an auxiliary fuel pump instead of like in the old Harvard you had to pump the thing. And right. uh, switched that on, and I was down to about 5,000 feet at that point, looking down at these big waves. Uh, and then I opened the throttle carefully, and bingo, um, it burst into life again, and it took me forever to climb back up to 8,000 feet. So uh, the drama really in it was uh, once I got back to 8,000 feet and pointing towards in the right direction again, was saying to myself, what am I doing out here in a single engine airplane? You know, I, the last airplane I flew across, he had four engines and then he got yeah. one, you know, one engine and you're in the water. So uh, it was a psychological game. Was I going to continue or panic and run back to um, Newfoundland and, uh, and, and forget about it? But uh, I realized that uh, this was a, an opportunity to get into the ferry game uh, and uh, I was aware that all insurance for hull insurance for ferry flights uh, was um, held by, uh, covered by uh, Lloyds of London. And they had a list of pilots who'd actually survived uh, and got, got across the water. And okay. what it meant to a company like James Aviation or um, uh, later Stuhl's was um, that they got a lower uh, premium. If the pilots were good enough to actually survive and get these flights, these airplanes back over the water, so um, so I kept going, and I had another fifteen thousand miles to go, and it took me it was a hundred hours of flight time in the airplane. Uh, the Atlantic was just the first challenge, and so I went on. Um, it was, uh, but I did complete it, down through the Mediterranean and. Uh, uh, worst case was from Athens to get getting to Singapore or, or Malaysia, which was always going to be the problem because through there, you know, through the Middle East and India, uh, it uh, was kind of hard to do business with anybody on the ground, and you had to do it all yourself. Uh, you had to pay the landing fees, you had to pay the uh, navigation fees, you had to pay for the fuel quite often with cash, uh, green dollars in uh, in India uh, and uh, I, a couple of times they tried to lock me up for various reasons um, or shoot me, I, I don't know, I mean there was always guards in India with guns. Uh, Egypt, I went down to Luxor and uh, they tried to rip me off there, uh, charge me some ridiculous navigation cost and so I thought they were going to throw me in jail there as as well. So the the ferry flight business, and I started to learn after this trip. I started meeting other other guys, and we all had our stories, and we all had our techniques of how to get through that area. I mean, once you left Athens, as I say, once you left Greece or Crete, I I later used uh, until you got to Malaysia. Forget about it. You know, this was get through it as quickly as you could. If you could have actually put enough fuel on board to fly the whole way and not land at any, any of those places, it would have been great. Anyway, right. so that was the beginning of it. And uh, uh, to, um, I got it to back to New Zealand, and it was in good shape. Uh, and as a result of that, almost within quite a few months of that, uh, the Australian company stole Aviation out of Melbourne, uh, Essendon uh, Airport, who I'd already met their chief sales guy, David Crompton. He he knew my background, and he, he actually tried to hire me a year before. And they had the Merlin distributorship and the Metro di- distributorship uh, for the whole of Asia and uh, New Zealand and Australia, uh, and the Learjet distributorship for the same area. Uh, and they said there was something else, they I, which I can't, escapes me for the moment. But anyway... He wanted me for the Metro Merlin thing, primarily the Merlins, um, because they would cut some deals, um, sold some airplanes to the Thai military, uh, Air Force, and the Army up in, uh, up in Thailand. And because of my military background, uh, he thought, and I, I think he was pretty wise, he knew I knew military airplanes, and I knew these guys up in, uh, in Asia including in Malaysia as well. In fact, the chief of the Air Force, uh, the Malaysian Air Force, a few years later, well, actually during that time, he, uh, he and I had been flying officers together in the jungle in 1960. <laughs> we'd, right. we'd been on an RAF survival course together. And uh, right. Matt Taib, Muhammad Taib. And I knew him well. And he'd also been in New Zealand for an instructor's course. So Matt was very, very uh, close. Uh, and I don't think the Aussies knew exactly what my background was up there. You know, I've been told in recent, recent years from New Zealand sources that I actually have got a CIA file on me. There is a CIA file on me held in Canberra or somewhere, um, which kind of blew my mind a little bit. But my wife, who was American uh, at the time we were out in Singapore, She said, of course, of course you've got a CIA file. (laughs) Who do you think we were working with all these years, you know, out here in uh, Indonesia and, uh, you know, trying to sell airplanes to them and all that kind of thing? And I said, well, I don't know. I can't remember it. It has nothing to do with me. I know nothing. I'm just a simple country boy from New Zealand, (laughs) you know. And she said, right. (laughs) But um, uh, so that's uh, that's why he hired me. And uh, he said... um, You've got to go and live in Singapore. How, how you? How can you deal with that? And I said, uh, actually, quite easy. Uh, so I got me. I had an apartment downtown, Singapore, and I'd lived in Singapore for with the military for six years or something, six or seven years. So I ended up another three years there. And right. um, but he said, before you go there, uh, you've got to go to San Antonio in Texas and get checked out uh, with Swerendren. And flight safety there on the Merlin Four A because that's, and then you're going to have to work with the Royal Thai Air Force officers and their pilots, uh, get them through the simulator, and um, then fly the airplanes back to Bangkok with them. So that was my mission, and uh, and he gave me a whole bunch of green money, you know, a couple of thousand U.S. dollars or whatever it was, uh, and said uh, and, and and credit cards. I think they were, in those days, diner's club or whatever. And I thought, oh, this is pretty good. Um, didn't pay me all that much, I must admit. But I really didn't need it, as it turned out. Not for a while, anyway. So I find myself in San Antonio, middle summer, uh, and uh, going to the school, the flight safety um, school there, and uh, doing the Merlin 4 course, uh, which included you know, quite a lot of simulator stuff, and um, then got together with the Thais uh, there, the Thai Air Force people, looked after them, and you know, they call, called me Colonel, which I'd never been, but I was Colonel Peter, and uh, uh, that suited them just fine. You know, they, I was the next military guy. They, they just assumed I still was. I guess that's why the CIA, if there's any CIA connection there, it's through them. Um, the, the airplanes actually had a bit of snoop gear on them, uh, But at least I recognized it all. It had TACAN, it had a military IFF uh, transponder thing on there, which, you know, same as our C-130s. And uh, navigation-wise, it had an Omega. That was the first Omega I'd used. And they were built into those airplanes. So uh, I was the right man for the job because the route that I took... Uh, to get back to to get to Bangkok with these airplanes was what i 'd done in the um, uh, uh, single engine airplane and right. uh, there was no way we could tank the merlin fours uh, they had too much gear in them there was a whole lot of uh, you know, camera gear and all kinds of odd stuff in there, so we couldn 't put extra tanks in the in, in the cabin, which we could do on the metros the you know the the passenger version. Yeah. So uh my route was perfect and um I that's what he did all the time. I'd go up to uh we'd have to clear the airplane at somewhere like Bangor or Buffalo, customs clear it out. And I, I remember one morning and one of the Thai airfo- airplanes uh flying up to um Buffalo, I think it might have been, and it's it's nighttime and uh the controller said uh he said um uh, that airplane registration—it's pretty unusual," he said. in, in your voice—you're who? Who the hell do you work for?" <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Well, it's a secret. I'm not going to tell you." <laughs> he said, "Oh, okay." <laughs> and uh, you know, some of the controllers in the US are great. And there's, this was the middle of the night, and he said, it, "But but that's a Thai Air Force thing." And he said, uh, "What what are you doing? You sound—you sound like an Aussie or a Kiwi or something." And I said, "Well, I'm not going to tell you. So just keep it quiet." <laughs> <laughs> but but it was unusual, you know, and I, I just flew them, uh, I think, on my New Zealand um, – no, no, I had a – I don't know. I, I, I'm not quite sure what license I, I was using. I had a, uh, a, a U.S. commercial for delivery flying, which I'd used for the, uh, the A36. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember actually with the – later on, I actually got an American ATP. I, I did the whole course – and um, did a check ride with the FAA, and that was on the Metro Three, uh, which required a type rating. So I did America, didn't originally uh, then get you know an ATP with uh, with the US. But prior to that, I'm not sure what it would probably it was just on a commercial. Anyway, um, those flights were good. Uh, I'd use the same route, uh, variations in places that I stopped at. I finally figured out that Athens was a little bit too busy and I started going into Crete uh, and uh, because I was a New Zealander and this is the late, uh, this is the early eighties. Yeah, yeah. uh, they thought I was great. I mean, there were these old hands who remembered the New Zealanders landing, uh, being, being captured, you know, and, right, right. and, and, shooting the Germans out of the sky as they did their, um, pa- big parachute attack on, on Crete. Uh, I, they used to treat me like royalty there. I mean, the family, i just take them, take me home to their families. This was the air traffic controllers and the Met people and everything else. So Crete was a wonderful, wonderful place. And I, you know, I kept going in there with as the years went by. Um, and uh, then I got into, uh, after that was all over, they got me to take one of these Metro 2s to Australia uh, across the Pacific. And that was the way they'd been taking these airplanes. And... The big pull there was twenty-two hundred miles from San Francisco to Honolulu, Uh, and then from there to Majuro in the Marshall Islands, and then from there to uh, Guam, Guam to Manila, uh, and where else? Oh, then to Singapore and so on and so forth. But uh, so I did that. Uh, That was very interesting. Ended up going to Wake Island for a CASAVAC on the the way on on Christmas Day out of Honolulu and then Wake to Guam. Ended up going up to Saipan and uh, Tinian where the uh, the Nola Gay took off from. right. Uh, Fascinating. What I was doing was demonstration flying uh, of the Metro. Uh, It was eventually destined for an Australian airline, but um, Stillwell's had set it up to do this demo in Southeast Asia. So I spent time in Guam doing that and then down to the Philippines and flew all over the Philippines uh, demonstrating it. Uh, Then Malaysia, uh, including Borneo. It was an old old stamping ground for me. Then down to Indonesia and uh, did some stuff down in Indonesia and then uh, finally got to Bali and headed for Darwin and had to shut an engine down uh, in the airplane. It was... uh, uh, because it it had tempted for some reason, cough and a splutter. I think it was to do with pressurisation, bleed air or something, and limped into through a whole lot of thunderstorms in the evening on one engine into into Darwin. Uh, okay. But that was about the only drama I really had in those aeroplanes. Uh, I had a lot of other mechanical problems. Lost a bunch of hydraulic fluid. All the hydraulic fluid going into Athens in a Merlin three, the short aeroplane. Um, And ended up there for two or three days until some tech came down from Germany, American guy who managed to fix the problem. Um, And they were brand new airplanes, which was one of the reasons. Now, I I did a bit of test flying on them. Uh, The company, when they came off the line, would probably put five hours of test flying on them. And I would do a bit of shakedown flying before I left San San Antonio each time. But invariably, something would go wrong. And... uh, um, some more annoying than others that would delay us, uh, but anyway, the Merlin three B was was the the real class act, and um, the airplane, the Merlin three B, the short airplane, particularly in its uh, configuration of uh, a uh, fancy corporate airplane with lovely seats and all that kind of thing, uh, was um, had a better power to weight ratio than a P fifty one. It was unbelievable and uh, I never, very rarely flew at light, but uh, I had to, uh, I got up to Torbay uh Newfoundland and uh, uh, had an engine issue of some sort and called up San Antonio and they said, well go down to Islip on Long Island and uh, they'll fix it down there. There's a people who, Fairchild or Air Research or whoever it was, the Garrett, Garrett people anyway. Yeah. And so I flew it down there, and uh, after we spent a weekend there, and after I got airborne, and, oh, oh, they said, we well, better do a test flight, hardly any fuel on it. And I remember taking off at Islip and uh, calling uh, New York Control or New York Centre and said, can I climb up to 20,000 or whatever it was, 24,000? And I went up there like a rocket. I mean, I just couldn't believe it, it was about 4,000 feet a minute rate of climb. And wow. uh, it, was, it was just tremendous. So uh, going across the Atlantic, though, I used to have to below, stay below the minimum nav, whatever it was, which was I think two four zero, flight level two four zero. Maybe it was a bit higher because I I think I'd sit at Two three zero, That's right. So I'd go. I'd have to fly underneath that. Um, and with that airplane, once we got it fixed took off from Torbay again, uh, headed straight for Lisbon, uh, and uh, we had VLF Omega in it. All these airplanes, apart from the, the Thai one, which was just an Omega reception, uh, all the other ones had VLF Omegas in them, and that meant you had the access to, uh, I think there were eight Omega stations and about nine VLF stations. Now, the VLF stations... Very low frequency stations were the submarine u.s submarine uh, communications bases uh, okay. there's one out probably still out on uh, in northwest australia and uh, they were scattered around the world uh, omega the closest one to us down and down under was at tasmania which the greenies of the time tried to shut down. They were constantly down there. And they said, oh, it'll be attacked by, by nuclear weapons or something or other. Um, right, this right. is a... Well, they never... For some reason, they never got out to the VLF station, which was a US Navy submarine uh, communications thing. Uh, I guess it was too far out in the sticks for them. But down in Tasmania, there were a bunch of greenies down there. Any of were trying to stop people chopping trees down. And, but they wanted to destroy the Omega stationed down there eventually it did come online but very briefly but it was a very good system and uh, uh, you know we've spoken about uh, inertial nav systems ins ins was available in those days obviously but it it was a very expensive setup to put in a corporate airplane you could put right. it in an airliner uh, and handle the cost but you couldn't put it in a uh, a corporate jet or anything like that because it was just too expensive and it was it was cumbersome i mean it was a was a quite a big complex system whereas the omega vlf was just a little receiver it's a radio receiver it um, received whatever it is 20 to 30 kilohertz uh, frequencies and just required a little antenna uh, on the uh, a blade antenna or an h antenna some of them were uh, on the fuselage and that was it. And the nice thing about it, unlike INS, uh, you could switch it on in the air, and it it'd find out where it was. So um, it was a very very good system. And it was uh, in a post Loran and pre INS uh, for certainly corporate airplanes. I'm sure the Gulfstream people had Gulfstreams put uh, and Falcon. Twenties or whatever they were, and all those things, they probably had INSs in of of, of some sort. Nowadays, I guess you can get very small INSs, and uh, so anyway, so that was the navigation system. worked extremely well unless you were in high cirrus. Uh, got up into high cirrus, it could um, precipitation static would would jump the the position around a little bit, but it would smooth itself out again, and uh, and it, it was very very good. So. Um, at least we knew what the winds were doing. We knew what ground speed we had. Uh we knew what drift we had. It was all all the information was there on the panel. So this is the you no, know, this is the early eighties, uh late seventies and early eighties. So it was it was a wonderful time. Uh and being able to do it myself, the whole thing. Uh didn't need navigators or signalers. We've always had single sideband, uh multiple channel HFs. Um it, it was good. But um it uh, the only uh, story uh, that is worth, and perhaps you know, a, a, an extremely funny one from the time I told you about how the problems in India, and I'd actually got it down to a fine art. I, I knew exactly what to do, uh, as you approached Bombay or Madras or Calcutta or wherever you were going, and all you really wanted to do was get fuel and get the heck out of there. You didn't need, you never bought any food there or ate any food there. You just had all that stashed in the back and uh and water and cokes and what have you uh it came into madras in the middle of the night uh close to midnight and uh so the whole uh, airfield is, is very quiet including uh the control tower and everything else but it was a 24-hour operation but i remember sitting in there i one of the, the, the tricks about India was, and they probably still do it, is you can't just make a flight plan out and, and get it signed or sign it yourself and hand it in. It's a special flight plan. And uh, so you put all the flight plan stuff, how high you're going, et cetera, et cetera, uh, how long it's gonna take, uh, type of airplane, who, who the captain is, et cetera, et cetera. But then you get down to the bottom section and there's all these signature blocks And one has to be signed by the weather uh, meteorological uh, officer. Another has to be signed by the radio officer. This is in the control tower. And, uh, oh, and then the airfield controller or the airfield whatever, because you had to pay for airport landing fees. And I think that was paid in U.S. dollars. Uh, But the navigation fees were paid in rupees. So they did the conversions uh, to suit themselves. Oh, and the fuel. The fuel, they, they, you had to pay in uh, U.S. dollars. Yeah. Um, and uh, so the fueling guy, for example, he'd come out and he'd say, uh, well, so we've got, uh, we put on, it'll cost you $1,763.50. Um, well, Initially, all you were carrying was I used to carry was uh, fifty-dollar bills or hundred-dollar bills, and they used to rely on that because so you'd give them two thousand dollars, and the next thing they would say is, um, "We don't have any change." (laughs) Oh, great! No U.S. dollar change. All right, we could give it to you in rupees and say, "No, no, no, in rupees." So I actually before I left the states, I used to have a big sack of, uh, uh, of of dollars. Uh, single dollar notes, five dollar notes, tens, twenties, fifties, and across the hundreds. And yeah. uh, I used to have hide these on the airplane, stash them behind the different places. You know, some of these odd places we stayed at overnight. Yeah. Yeah. So, but anyway, towards the end there, I got it down to a pack where they, they'd come out with that seventeen hundred and whatever it was, and I'd actually count it out to them down to the last cent. And and you can see, so crestfallen. You know, as, as as the dollars came out, the individual dollars and so on, and they'd walk away shaking their head and thought, "I wonder when I'm going to get shot, you know, or or, or uh, mugged over this." Uh, yeah. And then I used to get a bag of rupees as well, so I had all these dirty, grubby rupees, and I'd I'd count those out. Anyway, this night at Madras, I've gone through the fuel business, I've got that, and all I want to do is get out of there. But I, I had had them park uh, even back in the Bristol Freighter days, actually, at Calcutta, if you don't sign that, get that uh, flight plan sorted out, they just put a truck in front of the aeroplane. So, you know, the fuel truck or something, and you can't yeah. move. So until you get it right, you know, do do not pass go, do not collect $100, go back to the beginning. And uh, catch 22. I mean, uh, the Indians are just uh, the, the, the ultimate bureaucrats. Right. And... Uh, so anyway, I'm up there and I'm going through the rigmarole and they're actually all on their charpoys, on their beds up there and, and the SATCO is Senior Air Traffic Controller who I'm going to get the right... He's he's on his charpoy and he's in his uh, whatever they call him, doty or whatever. They've been snoozing and uh, so they all wake up when I show up and I put the... Uh, uh, the first guy is the Met guy and... Uh, so he's drawn a whole cross-section of the route. Beautiful. Uh, they were magnificent, you know, and it was all hand-done with colours and everything else of where the thunderstorms were and, you know, what it was going to be like. Uh, and I said, look, just give me the winds, you know, I, and I don't even need the winds, actually, you know, but he didn't like that. So so I thought i better shut up and I won't say anything. i would learned to not aggravate these people. Otherwise, you never get the signature. So, anyway, he signs off. Then the next guy is the radio officer. So he said, "Um, So, what um, uh, do you have uh, uh, on your HF uh, frequency uh, 8435 kilohertz? Uh, Yes. Uh, Do you have 132? And this is the questions they used to ask in our Bristol Freighter days when all we had was crystals, Uh, single sideband. Multiple choice. I said, I've got every frequency, just every frequency, right down to the closest uh, kilohertz, whatever you want. That was not the right answer. So uh, I get cleared out, and I'd been through the rigmarole for a while. I said, yes, I've got them all. I've got that, I've got that, I've got that. So he signs me off, and then uh, then I have to deal with the, the money thing. So I've got these two sacks of money. One's US dollars, the other is in rupees one for the navigation fees and one for, and you know, so I count all that out. I get to the SACO, sit in front of him, and uh, I, uh, you know, because I'd i been down the road so many times with these people, I, I thought I'd be a little bit of a smart ass. And I said, uh, hey, um, uh, why don't you guys just get one big rubber stamp with all the signatures on it and just roll it over the top? And it's all done in one hit. And, you know, he all stopped and he looked at me and it was as if I'd messed on the floor in front of him. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God. Oh, oh, this is not good. And he said, well, it's all your fault. And I said, whose fault? And he said, you British. And I said, hold on. I'm an ex-colonial just like you. Uh, you know, I'm from New Zealand. And he said, don't oh, know. No, no. And I said, but, but why? What, what did the British do? And they said, well, they left us all these pieces of paper. <laughs> <laughs> all these forms. Hey, we've got to fill them in. But, but, you know, what it is is jobs for the boys. Uh, each of these guys, of course, is getting paid uh, with his little grubby pencil and so on to put a signature on. And, yeah. and I was taking jobs away. That's what I was suggesting to him. I mean, all unbelievable. Right. So... Uh, you know that's the one of the best stories. Of course, I've I always remembered about those trips, but it was a it was a fascinating time. Talk about a one man band and flying around the world and small airplanes. But the airplanes were great. Um, you know the Metros and the Merlins, the Merlin three B in particular uh, was was just fantastic. So anyway, from there, I um, uh, through friends of friends uh, through the uh, connections at Stillwalls, uh, the chief pilot at Bougainville copper, I knew well, uh, he'd been a still guy as well. And they'd had a Merlin three, a, I believe Bougainville originally flying out of Townsville in Northern Queensland. Uh, he got in touch with me and he said, uh, Peter, he said, uh, how would you like to fly the West Wind? come and fly the West Wind for us up at Bougainville, I, I out of town. You'd be based in Townsville. And, uh, the company will pay for your move from New Zealand and, uh, you know, your bits and pieces and family and so on. And uh, I said, sounds good to me. Uh, the, the, the It was an Israeli-built Westwind one, and uh, they'd picked it up a year before, I think, uh, six months before in uh, Israel, yeah. in Tel Aviv. And uh, so I said, yeah, and that was it. The game was on. Um, my first jet airplane uh, really after the Vampire. And as this uh, chief partner of mine, Neil Morris, often said to me, he said, you know, the hardest thing about flying a jet airplane, he said, is getting the job in the first place. And he was right. I mean, it's, it's, talk about Catch-22. I heard so many times, uh, well, you, you can't fly a jet airplane because you never fly on one. So well right. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up uh, as the only New Zealand out of all the uh, corporate jets they had in Australia at the time, maybe twenty, um, I suppose, so let's say there was fifty pilots, uh, maybe a few more. Um, I think I was the only kiwi, and uh, i you know I'd used to get comments about it from time to time, but it was not. Um, the airplane was registered in Papua New Guinea. It was a P2. P2 BCM was the tail number. So I actually uh, didn't have to deal with the Australians at all and get an Australian licence. So I went up to... um, Oh, and I'd flown all those Merlins, of course, without an Australian licence. I was just using my New Zealand or US, whatever it was. Um, So um, I go and do the course, a um, ground course at... um, uh, down at uh, I guess it was Essendon. uh We with two two other pilots who were going to be first officers, and so we would end up with this operation up in uh, Townsville with three captains uh, and three captains here and uh, two first officers. So the first officers were with me. That was a new thing. One of them was Annette. He'd grown up in New Zealand. He became a very successful uh, a Cathay pilot later on, and uh, the other first officer. I think he still flies for in New Zealand. So um, we went and did this course down there uh, in Victoria, and um, then got up to Townsville, and uh, we flew the airplane, um, we did the checkout on the airplane, didn't go to do simulator stuff. A couple of years later we did, we went over to where the Westwind uh, flight safety operation was in Wilmington, in Delaware, and did full course. But Anyway, we did uh, did the flight, uh, all the flight checkout on uh, uh, on P two BCM up there, and that was fun. Uh, go up to Cairns, uh, went down to uh, Proserpine, um, I think down to uh, Tweed Heads, and a few. It was it was it was fun. Uh, the operation was uh, Townsville. Uh, it was an airline schedule actually. Uh, we'd go Townsville to Kieta on Bougainville, which was, I think, I'm just guessing here now, three and a half hours or whatever. Then we had about a four and a half hour flight down to Brisbane, direct from Kieta, Kieta to uh, Port Moresby, Uh, and that was about it. Those were the main runs. Oh, and then, yeah, I guess we went Brisbane, yeah, Brisbane back to Kieta and then to Townsville. And what we were doing was carrying uh, Australian... Uh, family members, a lot of the kids who were at school uh, in Townsville or Brisbane uh, bringing, taking them up to the island to stay with their families or vice versa who, uh, who were Australians who were working at the mine. Very good operation. And uh, so uh, did that for three delightful years three, three and a half delightful years and then there was a shift uh, price of copper had gone down and uh so they were going to move to brisbane and uh they laid off myself and one of the first officers and uh as it happened if i'd stayed there which i thought it was going to stay until i was 60 and i would have loved it uh, the company was great to work for uh we had special low interest rate loans from the company uh, Bogan copper for uh, uh buying houses in in townsville and so on but um about a year after I left, uh, uh, the natives started throwing spears up there, literally. And yeah. you may remember this: they, you know, they, they, there was uh, they closed the mine down. and yeah. It is to this day. Yeah. These were the rebels on on Bougainville. Yeah. Uh, you know, they were spear chuckers. There's no doubt about it. And nice people, but uh, they had a big issue with Papua New Guinea government. Bougainville, during WW Two, uh, of course, had been part of was always part of the Solomon Islands. And, right. um, and Ahoniera, uh which is at Guadalcanal, is now part of, it. that's Solomon still. But Papua New Guinea grabbed, um, through the help of the Aussies, I guess, uh, they grabbed Bougainville Island, which had this right. uh, very lucrative gold and copper mine on it. So um, uh, anyway, well, I was out of a job uh, in 1985. And I got six months' notice, which was which was good. Was, yeah. But I couldn't find a job. Uh, eventually, I, of all the resumes I sent out, I uh, I think I got a response from me and uh, to fly their Sim 27, be one of their crew members out of... I think they were out of Victoria, somewhere down there. Mel- I think they were Melbourne-based. Uh, otherwise, I volunteered, uh, you know, to fly C-130s in Nigeria, and all kinds of things. And um, it, was, it, it was tough. Uh, still no, nothing, because I had never been able to get into Air New Zealand. Uh, I'd pretty much given up on that, or Cathay, or any of those. And, and by that time, I was 40, 45, i on 46. Yeah, yeah. So I'm married to an American. And uh, uh, she wanted to come back to the States uh, because we've got a small boy. And uh, it's three years old and uh, to be close to a mother in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. So I said, well, I guess I can go over there on spec. You know, I've got a few contacts from my Merlin days and also from my Westwind time. And sure enough, the Westwind people uh, in uh, Delaware said, yeah, we'll we'll take you. We'll just come across. We'll have a bit of an interview and um, we'll give you a job here. And you can be our roving worldwide instructor or something on, on Westman's. And All right. I thought, oh, that's pretty good. And uh, you can be a simulator instructor as well on the side. But primarily, we'll send you to Australia and we'll send you to... I thought, oh, great. So I didn't have a green card. I could have got a green card years before. Yeah. Uh, so that was a bit of an issue. But it never really bothered me because I'd I'd had a business visa to come into the U.S. As, as much as I liked. You know, it was part of the deal with Stills and someone. It was, was kind of nice, and it was well before 9-11, of course. So yeah. um, I had to get a green card, applied for that, and uh, I came across to Delaware, sat in there with guys I knew, and they said, Peter, you know, we'll we'll take you in a heartbeat. You, you, you're just the guy we need. We need a little bit of international favour here. And I said, so what's the conditions. How much are you going to pay me? Well, it was $30,000, I think, the first year. And uh, so, uh, okay, uh, wants to go up to? Well, it sounded reasonable. And uh, I said, what about vacation? And they said, two weeks. Said, what? Two weeks? And I'd been getting six weeks vacation a year flying as a general aviation pilot from the first year, actually, in Australia. Uh, And I started going climbing in Nepal and things like that. I needed the six weeks. So uh, here I am stuck for two weeks. And I said, it's not going to work. So it's just, I said, you mean the first year? And they said, no, 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 actually for quite a few years. And uh, that's the way it is in the US, even in the airline industry. So I'm pretty much given up. So I'm on my way back to Australia. I'm dropping to LA and a friend of a friend uh, I go and see him, and he is a TWA uh, pilot. And he said to me, well, why don't you um, why don't you join these night freight operators? Uh, he said, I've got some contacts uh, in Orion Air uh, out of Louisville, Kentucky. Isn't that close to where your wife's mother is? And I said, yeah, just down the road, actually. I said, oh, okay. Um, yeah, I said they're flying 727s and 747s and... Um, Uh, What else did we have? Whatever it was. There was uh, uh, DC-9s, that's right. Right. And uh, he said, uh, I can put you in touch. Uh, He's an old friend of mine, military, ex-military guy. Uh, And I said, oh, okay. And so I eventually got the interview with a Ryanair. And they're in Raleigh, uh, Durham, in North Carolina. Now, I should point out, the background to the night freight operations at that time in 1985. FedEx had their own operation. They had their own air certificate, um, a FedEx Federal Express run by uh, uh, Smith and uh, uh, highly successful. UPS had got into the business as well, United Parcel Service. So they had a fleet of airplanes, uh, but they couldn't operate them because they didn't have a certificate uh, and I think it was obviously deliberate. Emory, uh, Emory Air Freight or whatever they call themselves, Emory Worldwide, they had 727s out of Dayton in Ohio. Uh, UPS had 727s in there. Oh, DC-8s, that's right. It was a bunch of DC-8s, re-engine DC-8s, stretched. Right. All freight haulers. Uh, there were three other companies who did this stuff as well. Orion Air didn't have any airplanes. Didn't own airplanes. It had a certificate, an operating certificate. So uh, it, uh, it it provided pilots and maintenance personnel for these operations for UPS and for Emory and for Paralaido Courier. Um, then alongside them was uh, there's another company called Interstate, and they were primarily they're out of Little Rock and they primarily flew DC eights the stretch dc8 for ups uh, and somebody else um, there was uh, uh oh gosh uh, evergreen ever slime it was known as and uh, <laughs> they they were actually flying 747s uh for themselves i think and they were out of uh, portland or seattle portland probably uh and he uh the guy that operated that everslime was—they uh, had CIA connections, of course, during the World War, uh, during uh, the Vietnam War, and uh, Air America and people like that. So they paid their pilots, including their captains, on the seven fours about thirty-three thousand dollars a year. That was it, and right. and there were some very young captains there. Twenty-five years old, twenty-six years old, flying seven forty-sevens. I mean, oh, wow. as captain, uh, and we oh, ended up—I I mean, ended up flying with some of those guys. Very interesting, their background. Um, and then there was one other company called Ryanair, uh, R Y A N, not the British one, but this is Ryanair, and I'm, I can't remember where they were out of. But they actually had uh, some seven five-sevens that UPS had purchased, and they were operating those. So anyway, that was the layout in 85. And, uh, so I went through this interview and, uh, within a very short space of time, I, I think actually the next day, our ops guy called me up and said, uh, Peter, he said, you've got a choice. He said, you can start in two weeks time, uh, as a 727 flight engineer. And, uh, or you can wait a month and start on, uh, DC nines out of, um, Uh, as a first officer, and for whatever reason, and I I had an engineer ticket by that time. Well, I'd done the course, let me say that. I I did the written uh, for a flight engineer, written. Went to Chicago or somewhere and did that on my own time. So I elected to become a 727 flight engineer, and uh, uh, we went to North Carolina, but um, to train, they sent us to Piedmont's, Training school over at uh, Winston Salem in North Carolina, and uh, it was uh, a pretty hard course actually, really really hard course, and it was a flight instructor course uh, for all of us. There was I think seven or eight of us. Uh, One one was a Brit XREF guy who I still great friends with here, and uh, he was in the course with me, and I was their kind of token New Zealander. and uh, we did that course there, and I think the funny thing about that was um, in, the, in the hotel we were staying at, there was, a, there was a class of southern bells who were going through as flight attendants, and uh, all blonde-haired, eye, blue-eyed, and you know, southern accents. And uh, we used to party with them, and uh, they thought we were Piedmont pilots, you know, the airline, their airline, um, flying passengers. And that when they graduated and we graduated we'd all be on these you know, they'd all be together. And they found out <laughs> they said, All you you boys, you boys are, you're not Piedmont pilots. You're little old night freak dogs from Orion Air. And that was it. The game over. So uh but the good thing about it was uh one of the one of the girls Came from the hills out there in uh, close to Kentucky, and uh, used to bring us moonshine. All uh, oh, right, in jars of moonshine, it was good stuff, and uh, it was always in jars. So they never, they never let up on the moonshine. I mean, Winston Salem, what a place! And it was in the cigarette, big cigarette place, of course, tobacco, and yep. uh, but these uh, to get hired by Piedmont, which was. Uh, Really attractive idea at the time was uh, if you didn't show up at the interview with a pickup truck full of hound dogs they weren't going to they weren't going to hire you <laughs> they only hired good southern boys you know uh, right. but they were absorbed as it turned out by u s air uh like a year later, which was kind of sad. It was a great airline, and they would give us free rides all around the country. That was the nice thing we could jump seat with them all the time It was very, Brilliant. very good. So that was the, that was the background. But, um, so I did the course down there, um, went to uh, uh, Louisville, uh, Kentucky, and we, family, we moved there, uh, set up camp and stayed there for 10 years. And uh, uh, it was a very cheap place to live, good housing for, uh, you know, for, for a good price. Uh, and in that time at Orion, I, I was with them for two and a bit years, Uh, I did a year really as a flight engineer, but in between, I I became a flight engineer instructor. I guess I did the job so well. And uh, I then upgraded on the side to first officer. I did about a year as a first officer, and it was all seniority-based, of course. And then um, uh, I did uh, about four months as a captain Uh, And I was still instructing as a simulator instructor. And I I guess, you know, I had a lot of fun with the people that came through because we were the people at Orion and all these other companies uh, who flew for these things. We were really mixed bag of people. I mean, we really were a bunch of misfits uh, who could never expect to be hired at, uh, you know, the, the regular airlines. And they used to laugh at us, of course, and treat us badly and say, we're just night freight dogs. Of course, we had the last laugh when uh, we all, most of us ended up at uh, United Parcel Service. And uh, we had we were paid better than any of the airlines. We never went broke. The company never went broke, never laid off. And uh, there were thousands of pilots later on. But anyway, instructing, 727 simulator instructing. I guess there's no pilots in New Zealand that have ever been uh, um, flight engineers on the 727. And... I, I mean, I, it, was just, it was just a lot of fun. I mean, hard work. Uh, a little bit of background. Why did they ever put a flight engineer panel and a seat in the 727? Because the technology in those days was, if you could build a DC-9 that was only set up for two pilots, why, why did you have to have a third pilot, you know, a third a, a, a flight engineer? Yeah. From what I understand, it was jobs for boys. It was... Um, it dated back to I probably American Airlines, whoever got the first 727s. They said, look, we've got all these flight engineers who are um, going to give us a hard time if uh, if we don't employ them. And right. uh, so we have to have an engineer seat. And it was designed in such a way, the more I look at it and, and remember using the thing, the APU was only where the engineer could get it. You couldn't fiddle with the APU. It's not like a seven three seven or a seven five seven you know we can set up the front there and push all those buttons and things all can be done from the front seats uh the engine the electrical system was unbelievably uh outdated at a time when automatic bus switching and all that kind of thing could have been done one of the, the big emergencies you know if there was an engine failure or something the first uh, call was uh Uh, what was it called, emergency emergency power to an operating engine and that actually had to physically switch it. I remember in the C-130s which were built around about the same time although we had an engineer there, if an engine a a generator went offline it automatically, you know the the rest of it took up the load not in the 727 I mean it was an extraordinary um, design to be quite honest and uh, so anyway, I, I ended up teaching on it, and I had I had some pretty funny uh, uh, guys coming through. We had uh, one and uh, two guys in particular, both B-52 pilots. They'd been on one of the B-52, uh, B-52 uh, squadrons. I think, right. um, I'm not sure where they did any of the bombing in Cambodia or whatever. I, I, I can't remember. They, they weren't all that. They were getting close to my age. Anyway, they Bob and Jim, and Jim was... Um, Jim was from uh, southern Texas, and I could hardly understand him. He, his southern accent was just, just beyond me. It was Texas accent. And the other was Bob, yeah. and Bob was uh, from Connecticut, so he had a quite plush uh, accent. It was uh, yeah. very, very proper. But these two guys, ha- I'd have them in the simulator, and I'd be sitting at the instructor's panel, uh, and probably Bob or Jim, whichever, was... was uh, well, Bob would be maybe sitting up front uh, doing the first officer thing and you know, one was doing the pilot, the captain thing but when I was trying to instruct Jim uh, he he couldn't understand what I was saying a lot of the time So, uh, and I couldn't understand what he was saying uh, yeah. in the heat of the moment and so Bob would have to interpret for him and he said, uh, Jim <laughs> uh, Peter just told you to do so and so and Jim would garble something back and Bob say, Peter Jim's a... <laughs> Well, these two guys—I mean, I, they were just a hoot. I, I mean, it, it was so funny, and they actually did graduate. <laughs> we, we had a big beer drinking party with, uh, at an English pub, which uh, really threw them a little bit. But uh, and the only the only other classic one about accents and so on was—he uh, was a Kentucky boy uh, uh, with a with a pretty good Kentucky accent, uh, but I could understand him fairly well. And he came from the Bluegrass area. Hell of a nice guy. So I've got him in there uh, in the simulator, and I think it's a check ride with the FAA guy, uh, his final ride. And one of the things that the engineer has to do uh, and prove during a check ride is that he can wind the gear down. Uh, There's a panel in the floor in the 727, just behind the, uh, uh, the two pilot seats in the console, uh, you've got to move the engineer seat out of the way and you lift up this panel and you've got a big crank handle and you have to crank the the gear down um, using a checklist, of course, and the engineer, the first officer would normally be reading the checklist. But uh, so this guy is, um, uh, he, he's having trouble in the dark in the, in the simulator and I don't know, he hadn't turned his lights up or something or other. And I said, God's sake, get your bloody torch out, you know, and and, and so you can see what you're doing. And he, he he was in the throes of this. He was down on his knees with a handle, <laughs> and he looks at me and he kind of shrugs. And and eventually the captain, <laughs> the guy who was sitting in the captain's seat, he said, uh, what Peter means is a flashlight. <laughs> and in the debrief afterwards, this guy said to me, Oh, Peter, he said, what the, you, you know what I imagined when you said, get the torch out, he said, I, I, I thought you really meant one of those torches where you, it's lit, it's all fire, <laughs> you know, and, and you're going to burn witches or something like <laughs> that. <laughs> so, you know, that was never forgotten. I mean, there was always always the torch. Uh, oh, gosh. I, I mean, they were they're hilarious. And uh, uh, another engineer guy who was a big eater, he was a professional engineer that I flew with a few years later when I was starting to climb mountains uh, up in the northwest. His name was Roy. Very interesting guy, but he was a great eater. Uh, he used to constantly eat on, on the airplane. If you ever ordered in something like uh, McDonald's or chicken pieces or something, rather, in the middle of the night, because we only flew at night uh, from somewhere, uh, and uh, the plan was, the three of you, you were going to, once you got to got out of there and you know, flight level heading for the next destination that we all sit down and eat it well if you left it with Roy he'd, he'd eat half of it before we got anybody everyone so anyway Roy was uh, Roy was a bit of a character and uh he uh I took him uh, on a recce up one of the mountains uh on a on forest roads in a in a rental car out of portland and he was absolutely thrilled uh about it and uh we we get back to Portland, and, and that evening uh, we fly out to Indianapolis where um, we used to, the sort was done before we flew off somewhere else to, I don't know, where, Boston or somewhere in the middle of the night. <laughs> and one of our smart ass uh, first officers said, Hey guys, did you hear Tremaine took Roy Hopper up into the hills in, in uh, Washington state? He said, You know what? The, the beers are actually hiding their food in the trees. <laughs> <laughs> it's the other way around. So, anyway, yeah. Oh, gosh. I mean, flying the 727 was uh, just with the people was a hoot and, uh, um, of those days. But then, anyway, yeah. cut a long story short, we got to, uh, uh, I was two and a bit years in, and uh, FedEx, uh, the FAA secretary or whatever he was, uh, whatever they called the guy, was an ex FedEx guy. And he said, you know what? UPS is getting away with uh, uh, a good deal here where they don't ha- actually have to operate an airline. So they're going to have to get a certificate. And he was, they were forced into it. So UPS now, it gets itself a certificate through buying some little podunk uh, operation out here who's got DC-8s. I think they've got about six pilots or something. And um, the word goes out. We're going to start hiring hiring uh, for a UPS airline, and this is the end of 88. So I've been with Orion for two and a half years, and I'm a captain uh, on the 727. So um, I get one of the first interviews, and one of the reasons is that I'm in the training department of Orion Air, and the training captain, or the training uh, leader there, uh, he they hire him and he said, well, I'd like to bring my own boys across and girls, you know, uh, from my training department. And they said, oh, well, we'll interview them. So I got interviewed and uh, they, uh, they said, you can't be a captain. I said, well, why not? You know, I'm a captain there. And they said, well, you, you don't have enough FAR, whatever it was under, I don't know, it was it, it was a bit of a hokey deal. But anyway, I had to, I dropped back to first officer But that was okay. I thought it's worth putting up with. Uh, And a year later, I was back in the captain's seat anyway uh, with UPS. And uh, uh, UPS was a very interesting company. I mean, they've got 3,000 pilots or something now. I I was in the first 50. It was called the Nifty 50. And uh, I was their token New Zealander. And uh, there was a token Brit and a token Norwegian and a token Swiss guy and a um, token Costa Rica Costa Rican and so on and so forth, but I was a Kiwi oddly enough no Australians um, And ne- very few I never saw an Australian after that uh, ever. I don't, I don't know why They didn't come to the US. Maybe there was considered there's plenty of work in Australia. I don't know It's uh-huh. uh, it was interesting. So um, anyway, so now I'm with UPS and uh, uh, We have a bit of a struggle with UPS initially because they're all truck drivers um, including the management, they're also Teamsters. So we have to join the Teamsters um, And uh, uh, for the first year while we're on probation. And then after we're off probation, some of the guys got together and they formed our own uh, IPA, which is a very powerful airline union right now in uh, association here in the United States with so many people. But the job was great. And... Uh, uh, flying 727s for them, uh, particularly as a captain, uh, well, as even as a first officer was great. It, uh, uh, they had some 200s. All our, what we used to fly before were 100s, which is all okay. New Zealand knows, I guess. I, I think the RNZF ones were 100s, uh, the little short airplane. Uh, right. The 200s were something else, particularly the ones with the really powerful uh, JT-8s in them. Uh, The JT-87 was the standard one in the 100s, but we had um, four airplanes, Uh, two of them had JT-815s, and the other was the most powerful, I think, ever, was the JT-817, beautiful avionics, all kinds of great stuff in them, and uh, of course, no, we're still not in the glass cockpit days, but these airplanes were really, really good, and... uh, but just uh, – uh, and then a year later uh, – no, I, I flew as a captain, I think, for two years. And then a slot came up, uh a captain slot, uh direct shift from the 727 into 747. And uh, initially, we only had 100s. And uh, the uh, and then we got uh, 200s as well. So as far as Air New Zealand was concerned, the pilots there, they used to say, oh, are you flying the classics, you know. Well, yeah. they were pretty good classics. I mean, a 747 is a 747. Um, yeah. the seven four seven's a seven four seven. The two hundred was was much better because it had more powerful engines, JT 9s on it, and uh, so that was really something else. But I just quickly getting back to uh, stories about the seven twenty seven. There were there's a lot of myths in, in other stories, odd stories about the seven twenty seven. It was a classic classic aeroplane, and it's sad that New Zealand really you know only had it for a pretty short period of time. Uh, and I think Ansett did it. Ansert had seven twenty sevens, didn't they, at one point? Um,
2: I think, yeah, I think they did.
1: Otherwise, there were none down in uh, until the RNZAF got uh, whatever they got down there. But one of the uh, one of the classic uh, things you learnt as a flight engineer was the Hoot Gibson circuit breaker, and some people may have heard of this, but maybe not. And it was a circuit breaker that was way only available to within reach of the engineer, right? past where you started uh, the um, um, started the a p u and what it did was um, uh, it controlled the outboard flaps oh no the outboard ailerons i 'm sorry so when the flaps came up fully uh the outboard ailerons on the uh, the uh, what's her name on the um, on the wings, the outboard ailerons uh, were locked out. They wouldn't move. Uh, and, and that was because of the, the, the moment uh, of the effectiveness of those ailerons. So the inboards were still working. And so right through the flight regime then, until you put the flaps down again, the outboard ailerons just wouldn't move. However, if the circuit breaker was out, uh, you, could, um, you could actually put the flaps down and the outboard ailerons would work. So anyway, Here's this captain, classic name, Hoot Gibson, probably from Texas. And Hoot's flying in the middle of the night. I, I can't remember whether it was United or whatever the airline was. And they're out in the dark between Albuquerque and Phoenix or somewhere like that, pitch black, except it's a full moon, fortunately. And uh, there's two engineers. Uh, one's getting IOE instruction from the other. So the instructor, uh, they put... What, what? What these pilots had found, because the company had said, look, if you guys can burn less fuel from A to B, uh, we're going to give you bonuses. So they said, oh, okay. Um, they'd figured out that if you put a bit of flap down uh, at uh, like two degrees or whatever the low, lowest amount of flap was uh, at high, at altitude, you could actually get a better, a much better fuel burn, lower fuel burn. So that's okay. what they were doing. They were getting the engineer to pull the circuit breaker, and they'd sneak. They put the flaps down, and uh, but they had to pull the circuit breaker, otherwise the outboard ailerons would start working. Well, right. classic example. You know what? What handed ended ended up was that the they had the change of engineer, this uh, new newbie comes and sits in the seat while the other guy's taking a bit of a break down the back and they've got a full load of passengers, of course. Uh, yeah. and, and and the engineer, you know, one of the first things the engineer does is run his hands down all the circuit breakers at the back there and say, oh, one of the circuit breakers is out and he pushes it in. Almost immediately, they're upside down at 35,000 feet. The airplane's upside down or somewhere. <laughs> and, and <laughs> so the guy's up the front and say, uh-oh, this is not good. And... uh God knows what kind of manoeuvres they went through. The only way that Hoot-Gibson and, and the other pilot were able to figure out which way they were up was the moon. The moon was almost immediately above above them and the location they were at was you know, at the high point. And, and they just struggled with this aeroplane until they got the moon above them. And they said, oh, God. <laughs> you can imagine what happened down the back. The aeroplane, of course, was a write-off. So that was the Hoot-Gibson... Uh, circuit breaker we all knew about it you know it was they kept drumming it in. don't ever ever pull that circuit breaker you know right. and uh, and the other one was the Cooper vein uh, on the 727 and that was uh, DB Cooper the guy that uh, hijacked uh, 727 out of right. uh, Portland to Seattle or vice versa and then jumped out the back Uh, He had a parachute and uh, collected 200, he had $200,000 delivered to the airport uh, and he was holding them all hostage and uh, um, he had this, uh, he was a skydiver guy of some sort. They never found out who he was because they never found him. And uh, they dropped the air steer door at the back in flight. I don't know what altitude, probably they would have had to depressurize the airplane. And he jumped out and of course they've never found him. They found some of the money which had been marked but never D.P. Cooper, Cooper. But as a result of that, uh, some of the airlines actually sealed those doors so you couldn't be open and flying and uh, completely sealed them up. Uh, others, like the ones we had, they still worked, but they had a little vein. It was the cheapest mod you could ever imagine. And as you picked up airspeed on takeoff, this little vein just put a uh, basically a piece of metal across uh, and and stop the stair door from coming down, and that was ah. so. That's the Cooper Vane. Yeah, I mean, seven twenty seven. Just unbelievable all the stories about it, um, and uh, all the amazing things that uh, happened. Um, ah. Yeah. So, anyway, I'm I'm rambling on here a bit. I know, but uh, the seven four seven days were great for me, and that's how I finished my career. Was uh, as a captain. Uh, on the 747, 100s and 200s. Never did see a 400. Uh, they came much later, so I never had to learn about uh, the magic FMS and uh, all those glass cockpit stuff things. Um, for navigation, we had uh, triple INS on on the 747s, and they were laser gyros. Uh, very, very good. They put them into triple mix, and uh, they looked after each other, and judged each other, which was more accurate, uh, and they were very good. I did miss out on the GPS. Um, they put those boards in, the little receiver boards, into the into the, interne- uh, the INSs, I think, just shortly after I left, which was on my birthday in May 1999, uh, when I hit 60. Uh, the rules of the game were still here. You could not fly in the front seats of um, commercial airliners, um, Freight or otherwise, when you got to sixty, which was an arbitrary figure, and uh, so anyway, UPS had to pay me. A, I, I got a pension from that time. I could have stayed on as a flight engineer, which I was approved to do. You know, I, was a, I had a flight engineer ticket, and uh, I knew the seven four seven I engineer panel extremely well. Uh, so, um, could have been would have been half the pay. And I still would have had to go out there and um, fly the routes and get tired, uh, all the long routes across to Asia and across to Europe and so on. And furthermore, in the middle of winter, I would have had to go out there and kick the tyres and stumble around in the snow underneath and uh, come back and been told to get coffee for the crew up front. So I chose not to do it. And uh, I've never put my hands on an airplane since, on a uh, controls and not really missed it. It was good times and uh the last flight that I did, uh the company was very good. They my son, uh eldest son Jeremy, who's currently flying for Garuda, he uh he was flying uh RJs for R J fifties for Comair out of Cincinnati and uh, uh as a captain and um he um uh they jump seat, they jump seated him up to uh Alaska where I was on, on my last section sec uh sector which was gonna be from Anchorage down to Louisville in the middle of the night and um put him on board with me which was which was great. And it was a two hundred, which was really nice. And right up to the end there I was absolutely terrified I, I was gonna break something and uh after forty two years of <laughs> and no accidents uh the uh and in the, in the approach which was a back a back course ILS into one of the shorter runways at Louisville I thought uh oh here we go this is not going to be good no ILS is here it's going to be back course and I'm, anyway I got it on the ground very smoothly and uh taxied in and Louisville uh middle of the night uh, when you get there there's about uh, probably 200 airplanes uh on the UPS ramp and uh they just parked them like fighters Um, you don't go into gates or anything like that. There's just a bunch of people waving bats out there and uh, they swing around and the wingtips between the 747s are probably 10 feet the most. and uh, They're all lined up, probably 20 747s and uh, 100 757s, 767s uh, and all these little vehicles all racing around and unbelievable. It's just incredible. So uh, I got in there and got it in. And when I put the parking brake on, pitch black, well, it's still dark in the cockpit. And uh, I pulled the shut the four fuel, the fuel levers off, and everything went quiet there. And I thought, um, I wonder if it'll catch a light or anything <laughs> <laughs> before I get out of here. You know, that was all I Let's get out of this airplane before it burns, and, yep. uh, and we won't be blamed for it. So it was, uh, it was a pretty happy time. Uh, great ending, and uh, you know, having having my son on board in particular was was, was just great.
2: Oh, fantastic! Yeah, it was
1: a superb airline, uh, and it still is. You know, it's wonderful. and making a lot of money. Uh, FedEx, of course, is uh, is still doing extremely well, but they probably are, in my opinion, the best two companies. If you want to be a a commercial air, airline pilot, um, you you want to fly for FedEx or UPS. I mean, it's just oh, right. marvelous and uh, very uh uh very interesting company um by the time i left there were probably uh perhaps uh 70 or 80 uh female pilots many of them captains uh we probably had 150 african americans um a lot of hispanics uh from south america and so on mexico uh and and people like me, and um, few, quite a few Brits, uh, quite a few Scandinavians, including one uh, very talented, attractive uh, girl from Helsinki, and from Finland, um, Tula, I, and so UPS are very smart because they they were getting into the international game and uh, in, in buying up companies in Germany and you know wherever in Asia and so on, so. It behoved them to um, to have these people who represented the world, very very clever and uh, a delightful company to work for. Um, hard taskmasters though, they expected their pound of flesh. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so that was that was the end of it. I guess.
2: Uh, just sort of what, what, what sort of routes were you flying? Um, were you doing the same cities all the time, or were you going all over the place from week to week?
1: Well, it depended what you bid. Uh, you could bid lines for two months at a time. Uh, on the 747, I used to bid two two weeks on and two weeks off because I lived 2,600 miles from my base, which was Louisville. Uh, right. Because in 1995, I I we moved to uh, Washington State, uh, just south of Seattle. And I used to hitch a ride in uh, on one of our flights, DC-8 or whatever, into Louisville, and then go fly for two weeks and then I'd come back and I'd jump seat home again. And uh uh Alaskan Airlines were very good. They would uh, they would let us uh, jump seat uh in the cockpit on their flights from Anchorage down to Portland and so on and so forth. So uh but uh most of the flights I did on the seven four seven were Louisville to Anchorage and then out to either Hong Kong, um, Kansai, that's Osaka uh, Tokyo. Um, where else did we go? Down to Taiwan and to Taipei. Uh, okay. Nowadays they, you know, they go, they go to all kinds of places in China and so on. And um, yeah. the other way I used to go um, out to New York uh, and then across to uh, Cologne. But um, you know, it was quite different to the 727 days, which was all night stuff, all local. Uh, And when I say local, I mean local within the lower 48. Uh, And uh, we just, it was all night stuff, all night. Unless you got caught out somewhere and, and, uh, you know, you had to fly an airplane back uh, the next day or whatever. It was all all predicated around picking up stuff, letters and things like that at four o'clock in the afternoon anywhere in the United States and having a guarantee that it could be delivered by 10.30 anywhere in the United States the next day. Uh, and all the sorting was was done in those days in Louisville, but they've got other sort centres there. And it employed thousands and thousands of local people in Louisville in the middle of the night. Housewives right. and students and God knows what all at this huge sort center. It, it was uh I just an unbelievable business. But I, I just was gonna mention, you know, that seven twenty-seven uh uh winter time, uh, because it was being done, you know, in, in uh in the middle of the night. It was like going into Greymouth for me. It was, uh, you know, where there was no tower or Westport, and uh, it all sort of came back to me. Uh, I think one of the funniest things, and, and well, I guess it was funny. It was, uh, it, it scared the bejesus out of me. But we, um, I had this one-eyed pilot captain. I was flying first officer. He only had one yeah. eye. He had a glass eye, and I don't okay. know how he he held. his, this was at a Ryanair. and I don't know how he held a, a license, but they'd given him one. So I'm going flying with him for the first time, and it's wintertime, and we have, head out of, uh I guess it was uh Louisville, and uh fly into, we're going to Cedar Rapids in Iowa, blowing snow, blizzard conditions, crosswind component of, I don't know, 15 knots or something like that, and he's flying the airplane, and uh, uh the... Uh, we've talked to a couple of scud runners out there, guys flying these small airplanes, and yeah. uh, they tell us what the conditions are. There's quite a lot of snow on the runway, and it hasn't been swept, and um, they don't know about the uh, braking conditions uh, for our airplanes, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so it's relatively critical. So uh, we're just talking to a flight service station down somewhere south, and uh, they're passing on some of this information. So anyway, we come on round onto the ILS approach, and we know it's close to minimums uh, for decision height. So we get to get to the decision height and didn't see anything. And I, just as we started climbing out uh, on the go around, I, I looked down and I thought, "Yeah, but runway run my lights are on. What what what's wrong with the approach lights?" And you know, I, I keep having these silly concepts of saying, "You better keep an eye on that or whatever." <laughs> <laughs> He's only got so, one eye. You know, I, was, I kept being tempted. And then I realized because I was so worried about him actually being able to fly the approach, uh, that I'd forgotten to go to this particular frequency, VHF frequency, and activate the approach lights. Right. You, you actually hit it, uh, you went to this frequency and it, it click, 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 and the approach lights were supposed to come on. And then they stayed on for 15 or 20 minutes and then they went off again. And I hadn't done that. So I didn't tell him that. And uh, So the next time we come around and he does the approach, he said, oh, wow,
2: this is the approach. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: uh, I was always a little embarrassed about that. But I, I, you know, I was so intrigued by the fact whether this guy could actually fly the approach with one eye. But anyway, uh, So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that. We never really knew what the conditions were going to be like on the ground um, until we got with UPS. And they they actually started paying people to be on the ground to talk to us because the towers were shut down. And you didn't know whether the runway had been swept of snow or it had two feet of snow on it. You you never knew. And when it came down there, found the runway lights, maybe. And uh, but they were a little dim and touched down and uh, you smothered in snow. Uh, so, uh, and no braking action. You didn't know what, until UPS got in the act and they had these little cars that would race up and down that were tested. I don't know if you're familiar with, they have anything like that in New Zealand, but um, it has a some dynamo thing on it that tells you what the braking action's like and they ra- race this vehicle up and down the runway. So uh, that was, that all happened after I left Orion, and we actually got with UPS because they they had a lot more money uh, to spend and they they knew if they wanted their stuff to be delivered, they had to meet these requirements. Right, okay. Yeah. Yeah, Fascinating stuff. Yeah, it was. uh, It was. The little old night freight dogs, that's what we were called. We even had T-shirts made. Um, back in the UPS wouldn't have appreciated it, but we had it for Orion. I am an Orion little old freight dog, night freight <laughs> dog. <laughs> 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 it was, yeah, it was uh, the Piedmont people, uh, those Southern folks, but it's just a hoot, you know, and oh, I just want to, I'd like to make a comment about um, during some of those years, I'd get feedback from uh, Air New Zealand people that I knew, uh, not necessarily the ex-military guys, but uh, some of the guys that had come from NAC or whatever, and they'd say, "How do you stand flying with those UP- uh, with those Americans? You know, they're they're, uh, they're not very good at, at flying airplanes, you know, and and you know anybody they can teach anybody to fly. Well, that was the point, you know. Um, they don't it's the New Zealand attitude of some of these people, and it's true of Australian pilots as well commercial airline pilots, and the Brits to a degree they 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 have this elitist attitude about flying airplanes that you have to be something it 's a really really special job, probably because of the numbers game you know there 's so few so therefore it's yeah. a it 's a very charismatic uh, uh elitist um, only we can do it, and we're, we're this and that and everything else. And people would write me letters uh, from there in the letter days and address them, Captain Peter Tremay. i think, <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, I just thought it was so dumb, but uh, they didn't understand the American system. And if they if they had touched down here, it would have been in Los Angeles or San Francisco or, or um, uh, maybe New York or whatever. And... Yeah. Never, never understood what it's like to operate in this country, uh, in the middle of the night or whatever, with all the traffic, incredible amount of traffic, uh, all handled so well by the air traffic controllers here. I mean, it's brilliant, absolutely, buddy, brilliant. And um, uh, they thought it was all casual, the call signs, and in that we'd say, uh, "Okay, buddy, we can talk to you later," or something like that. That wasn't. They didn't think that was right. Radio communications, um, right. But we did, it's done all the time here, and uh, so, I, um, you know, I I I was very upset about that because I found the FAA and the whole operation here and all the airlines brilliant, absolutely brilliant at what they do. I mean, if you ask the average New Zealand pilot, commercial pilot, uh, or um, Australian in particular, you know, to come and fly in here in the middle of the night in the middle of winter. They'd be totally lost and, and not have any operational control, which uh, you know you had to put all the flight plans in yourself over the radio and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, which was uh, no, I thought they were very very good. Yeah, um, and the other thing is you no, know, I was right at home with all these people. Um, a lot of them were ex Vietnam uh, Navy guys, Marines uh, who joined both Orion and UPS. Uh, including guys, uh, one guy had been in the Hanoi Hilton. He was an interesting fellow. Uh,
2: um,
1: uh, one of the first guys off the F-117 during their spook years in the eighties. Uh, he was an engineer of mine at one point. And, uh, he was one of these people, um, used to get on this airplane first thing in the morning back in the early eighties, uh, 727s and 737s, uh, these military guys, that go out in civilian clothes or whatever at Nellis Air Force Base and disappear into the north, uh, you know, and go up there. They tell their families, well, we'd be back in a few days' time. They said, well, where are you going? And said, we can't tell you. <laughs> right. And then we'd right. go up to Area 51 um, to Tonopah, and uh, uh, they'd fly the, uh, what was it called, Nighthawk. Uh, oh, yes. Sir. Yeah, and it, when it didn't exist. And yep. so they were pretty interesting. And then we had uh, to fly with. I mean, their stories were fantastic. Then we had uh, SR-71 guys as well. And they were a hoot to fly with. I mean, you'd get sitting in the cockpit there for many long hours and talking to them about their experiences on uh, on something like the SR-71, flying along at Mark three or whatever they did, uh, 3,000 miles an hour. I mean, it was just unbelievable. So... So I was right at home, and a lot of them, I was able to, because of my military background and uh, Vietnam years, they adopted uh, they adapted to me very quickly, even though I had a different accent, uh, yeah. and uh, we we could all talk the same language. Uh, the, one of the things, of course, after nineteen eighty four, when uh, Longy got into power, uh, some of them the military guys would, would say, hey, Peter, you know, what's, what's the deal with not being able to operate our nuclear ships into, uh, into New Zealand? What, what, what is this? Whatever happened to answers? So I'd, I'd be fairly diplomatic about it and say, well, you know, we, uh, he, the government they got in New Zealand uh, decided that they would do that. They, he got elected on a, an anti-nuclear zone um, arrangement and that's it. And yeah. so uh, they were kind of saddened by that. Because they, they, they enjoyed coming to New Zealand, uh, the Navy uh, and, uh, and the Marines and so on. But they loved, of course, going to Australia still. Uh, right. right? They used to talk about Perth, the you know, Sixth Fleet, or I guess it was the Sixth Fleet used to operate into there. And they'd love Perth and Sydney, of course, the uh, going in there. And they said, well, the Aussie is yeah. completely different. You know, we can go there. And they're really, really happy to see us. And they don't ask us whether we've got nuclear weapons on board. And we can actually take (laughs) our nuclear submarines in as well. So boomers. So I said, well, you know, I'm sad. I'm sad myself about it because our relationship from my time, particularly in Southeast Asia, during the Vietnam years and all that kind of thing. I work with you guys. I work with you in the Antarctic. I worked with. Uh, with the U.S. Navy, I worked with the Air Force up at uh, Kadena in Okinawa and Tachikawa in Japan and, uh, you know, in Saigon and so on and so forth. And I, I'm really, really sad. And I'm that sure, happened. you know, the New Zealand um, Air Force is, and, and military feels exactly the same way. But I said that's that's what happened. And
2: uh, it doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. No, that's right, and there's still a lot of people here even now that are still sad about that whole loss of that um, friendship and, and arrangement that we had with America. Yeah, what well, is it ran? It ran deeply here uh, from a trade point of view. I mean,
1: back there in Reagan, Reagan days, they said, "Well, we're not going to buy any more meat from New Zealand uh, or yeah. butter or anything like that." I mean, why would we? And uh, if you if you want to stay out of it, we're not going to give you any more intelligence information. I'm not going to share any of that and um uh you we don't want anything to do with you.
2: In fact yeah, I think exactly.
1: yeah I and I am not I'm not surprised. And you know, the Americans really felt bad about it. Uh and and it was totally unnecessary. But uh, of course the relationship with uh with Australia was totally different. And yeah. it was interesting, you know, that at the time and I guess it's a lot to do with the uranium uh Australia was felt that their relationship with, well, it was all, all dates back to the Coral Sea, the battle of the Coral Sea. Um, and I suppose that's of greater immediate interest uh, for the old hands um, in Australia than it is in New Zealand, that it did save Australia. And
2: that was the U.S. Navy. Well, exactly. And there's a lot of people in New Zealand still who remember the, um, the fact that the battle of the Coral Sea, that, that saved New Zealand's bacon too, because the, the Japanese were actually heading to New Zealand, not to Australia. They were going to take New Zealand first. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, that battle saved us. Well, it was, uh, the other aspect about ANZUS was uh, when w- the reason
1: that we got that wonderful expansion that I happened to be at the beginning of uh, yep. in uh, airplanes like C-130Hs and P-3s and Iroquois and all that kind of thing uh, was because we went to Vietnam. And why did we go to Vietnam? Because of the ANZUS Treaty, which was all dated back to the Battle of the Coral Sea. And so uh, I, I, it just, well, it's one, one of the reasons I left New Zealand. I was happy to leave New Zealand back in 82 uh, um, or whatever it was and went to, uh, went to Australia and uh, then, then over here. So uh, yeah, sad, sad times for the New Zealand military
2: yeah definitely definitely. Mm, anyway so you you mentioned that um you haven't flown an aircraft since uh, your retirement in 1999 but do you keep in touch with um aviation do you still follow it Um, do you go to air shows that sort of thing well
1: yes and no um i'm still uh, locked into uh, the uh, pilot association at ups and uh, so i get all that information i'm and a lot of those guys you know, I know they're starting to retire at 65, of course. Uh, quite a few of them are dying. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm kept alert with that. I'm surrounded here in Reno with a lot of those guys as well, um, right. where re- people retire here because of the tax base. Uh, it's a much lower tax base, and it's a great place to live, close to Lake Tahoe and so on. So I've got all the people I started with, um, quite a few of them I'm, I'm surrounded by here. And uh, right. so, so it's it, it, it's really worthwhile. Yeah. Uh, air shows. I've lived in Reno since two thousand and eight. I've never been to the Reno air show. Oh gosh. And the, okay. re- <laughs> the reason is September's a big mountain time for me. Right. So right. Uh, you know, all the Harvard or well, the T sixes show up here, and I see them flying around in groups. And uh, the T fifty one show up, and um, the uh, red not the red arrows, but the uh, Blue Angels show up here, and I've I see them scorching around here. Uh yeah. and uh whatever the Air Force team is as well, they'll be here and the F one seventeen show up and occasionally a B two. So um uh but I've never been to them. I I must admit, you know, I just I've got so locked into my outdoor activities that although I keep in touch, um you know, I I'll I'll watch aviation stuff. I'm trends and things like that. I'm very interested in, in these recent accidents that are obviously a result of uh, over-automation and computerization yeah. in, uh, in a lot of these airplanes. Uh, yeah. I'm, I, I do have an interest in that. And I have some reasonably strong opinions about it as well. Um, I even have strong opinions about two-engine airplanes, um, which um, now, uh, an old friend in New Zealand, senior instructor, uh, interesting enough, I found out that he he felt the same way. He was an ex-Air Force guy. And right. uh, I guess because we grew up on two-engine airplanes that uh, didn't have ETOPS. You know, they didn't, when one engine shuts down, you better run for run for cover. And, uh, of course, what they did, they got this reliability business going on these engines, on the 757 and the 767, uh, and then the 777, et cetera, and all the airbuses and uh they believe that they'll keep getting away with it, uh but we know from our old asymmetric days you shut an engine down, you've lost more than fifty percent of your power because you've cranked the engine or uh, the aircraft around uh and you've got you've only got about forty five percent of the uh or something like that of the performance because of the yaw. Oh. Let's keep it straight and uh uh that's one thing and, and of course there's all the other. They put all these extra bits and pieces on them, like extra hydraulic pumps and so on and so forth. I I think one of these days, sad to say, uh, somebody in in one of these two-engine, big two-engine airplanes is going to lose an engine and then, uh, you know, lose another or have problems with it, and they're going to be into into the ocean, uh, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from they would have been years ago uh, when... Two engines were unreliable. I had a 747 instructor who always used to pose the question. He'd, he'd say, uh, why do I fly four-engine airplanes? And his answer was, because there are no five-engine airplanes about. <laughs> and he was right. I mean, he, was, he was an old DC-8 guy. And I think he'd been, in the Air Force, he'd been a KC-135 guy from time. Or C-5 or something like that. Or um, C-141. So, or even C 130s No, we we believe in four engines, or at least yeah. three, and the seven twenty seven meets those requirements nicely. You no, know, it, uh, and so do the L ten eleven and the DC ten. Um, you get down to two engines only when you start, <laughs> you, you lose one. Uh, yeah, I mean they've everybody has made it to date, but uh, perhaps one of these days, it's almost. Well, I, I I think it's going to happen. It'll have to happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, is there any discussion on that
2: back there on on your forums and so on on uh, the? Yeah, you know, I haven't I haven't personally come across it, but uh, now that you bring it up, it might start to become a a, a topic. But uh, I I can certainly see what you're saying. Yeah, it's a um, well. The trouble is, all the pilots and uh,
1: passengers and everyone they just take it for granted now. And they've grown up with uh the supposedly two engine reliable engines and uh, here's the seven eight seven which I flew in recently, which was very nice um, within New Zealand uh, from from uh, Auckland to uh, perth but it's you know it's two engines, and uh, two engines is two engines so it's um it's a bit worrying but i'll it's the only way to fly these days. no one wants to fly seven forty sevens anymore uh, that's right yeah anyway
2: yeah wow well thank you very much for um, taking us right back right through to the end of your career here it's been fascinating really interesting stuff yeah I don't know um, I don't know whether I'll uh, well what I will
1: will be doing and one thing of course I did decide to spin up a a website uh, only a year and a half ago on my aviation career and so I'm still working on that Uh, I've got to fill in the UPS Orion uh, stuff, um, and uh, but I think I've got I've, I've I've got to pad out the the other ones a little bit more. And these discussions with you have raised, and you know, I keep thinking of some of the many many things I've forgotten. You know, I right, yeah, I've I've forgotten more than I ever learnt. I think at least, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it, <laughs> it, it 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 certainly does come back and. uh, uh, a lot of the fun times I had here, but also the fun times I had in the RZF, uh it was really good. The, the time on the ground was not a lot of fun. Um, I should have actually left the Air Force probably after 12 years, which is, that's what I re- was originally on, was a 12-year contract uh, when I joined the Air Force, and I signed on for 20 years, a little bit later, which was a mistake. Um, the 12 years would have got me through the C-130 days. And uh, Air New Zealand would have been waiting for me out there, or well, Cathay, preferably. Uh, yeah. I would have been the right age, 29 instead of 37. And, uh, but Cathay is what I would have gone to. Um, Air New Zealand was going to be like old home week um, with the same people and uh, certainly a sinecure for an ex-RNZF transport guy or even a fighter guy. Um, but uh Cathay would have just that much more attractive. Right uh, for me. And but I'm pleased looking back on it, I have no regrets. Uh, I did um I, I had to follow the dream thing and it was it was tough at times. But I um really when I got to stall aviation and started doing the delivery stuff, got to know people in the United States and uh and then got into the night freight business here and whatever. Uh, definitely no regrets. Right. There's no way. Absolutely. Yeah. That's was very fortunate. <laughs> and, but I made my own luck, I must admit. And, uh, uh, I think that's the key to it. I, I was certainly in the right place at the right time, but you had to make sure you were in that position. It's, I said, somebody, when I first came here said, you've got to catch the brass ring when it comes by, you know, and, yeah. uh, grab it. And UPS was like that because we were very reluctant to go to UPS. Uh, we were doing so well at Orion, and uh, we always thought UPS would be very difficult, and it was for the first couple of years or a year and a half. And uh, But it was, a, it was a brass ring that was coming by in, in and it had to grab. and I was right in that because Orion collapsed almost immediately afterward. So, right. I mean, okay, Dave. Well, I'm pleased okay. to uh, offer all that uh
2: b s to you <laughs> well thank you very much it's, it's it's certainly it's certainly much more fascinating than what you um how you just summed it up <laughs> <laughs> well i think
1: i think that people out there who uh, know me uh may try to pull it you know, pick holes in it a little bit uh and and that's it wasn't done intentionally and if i it's just that you know, at 76, uh, you, do, you have a few senior moments and, and do right. forget a few things. But I think I got most right. of it right and uh fairly close. Anyway, right. and uh, all the flights on my own, of course, no one, no one knows about those. I can... <laughs> so I could tell any story I like, like dropping in over the Titanic and, and swimming ashore or something like that, and uh, they'd have to believe me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, Dave. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks very much, Peter. It's been great. Okay. Well. It, okay. Uh, I'll
1: be I'll be watching with interest on on your website now on the uh, the web. So uh, not not just my things, but, but I'll try to keep up and you know put in my pennies worth from time to time, maybe on uh, some of the stuff that's on uh, on the website. Your, your website. Brilliant. I'm talking about.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Okay, Dave. Cheers. Cool. Bye. Bye. That was the Wings Over New Zealand Show with Dave Homewood.